All right, everybody, it's good to be back. Uh, it's the Internet's most popular Q&A episode with uh, SSD Able and Dave McConey. How are you, What's Dave? Up, guys? Doing well, doing well. Uh, awesome. Yeah, so like last time, we saved up a bunch of questions that people asked us in DMs. So just a brief announcement uh, once again. Uh, feel free to send us questions. You might not get a response and uh, you might not get a free coaching session on Instagram, but we will save your questions up and it will be answered at one point to the best of our abilities. Um, and also, so this is going to be a two-part Q&A. This is part one. For the second part, you can go over to Dave's channel. It will be linked in the show description as well as uh, in the comment section. I will probably just pin it and uh, you can continue watching it there. So uh, that is that. And uh, just before we jump into the actual questions, uh, one thing I wanted to briefly cover with you is you made an Instagram post about it not that long ago that, and we just chatted about it privately yesterday, that uh, you've been training one calf only for the last year and a half, I believe. And uh, you found some interesting things. Um, what did you find about that? <laughs> well, basically I found that nothing happened, uh, you know, and so I do have an Instagram post kind of going into that. Um, but you know, my thoughts on calves are you either have the genetics for it, you don't. And I mean, it's going to be a spectrum, right? Some people are going to have massive calves doing absolutely nothing. Uh, some people are just never going to grow their calves. Mine have been the same since I was 17 years old. They've been just under 15 inches. Um, and, and that fluctuates a little bit when I gain weight, but not much. I mean, literally from like being, 170 at the time when they were first that size up until i was like 220 they maybe grew like an inch and a lot of that was just some fat you know by the time i cut down they're basically the same i mean they literally just didn't change um and this is meanwhile while like you know my arms grew three inches and i was training my calves more frequently more intensely a ton of different variations everything you could possibly think of and again if you go to the instagram post you'll see where i talk about you know everybody's got this advice right try this try this try this and it's like dude after 15 years, like I've tried everything and, and just nothing changed. Um, I remember saying like, imagine if all muscle groups were like that, like, if, like we just assume we can change things, but in reaction, like in actuality, you know, for some people, they just can't change that much of anything. And you and I were talking able about some people just have these body parts that just really respond. Um, and with calves in particular, although I guess really all muscle groups, it's also, there's so much about like insertions and shape. I mean, I don't think you actually have that much more muscle mass like if you were like weigh our calf weight i don't know if there would be a huge difference because they measure about the same and we're about the same height but yours look really good and mine look like pegs um and so part of it's just where they insert and like you know the shape and all that too yeah and like i told you i would be interested in running a similar experiment on my arms actually uh because like i i don't think i have bad arms but like they I think it was in 2016 when I measured them at 38 centimeters and they are 38 centimeters. Uh, I was recently kind of hoping cause I got, uh, quite a bit heavier and they went up to like 40 centimeters. So like basically an inch on, so it went up to like 16 inches and I was like, oh, maybe I can retain some of this as I diet back down. And no, like actually I'm going to do something on, on air here, but I've been getting a lot of compliments on how huge my arms look. So I'm going to do like a, a flex in the camera. Just want people to guess. Do you think it has grown? Well, I'm going to measure it now for you on camera. So this starts at five centimeters, basically. So like two inches. So um, 
If it has grown, then it should reach further than 43 centimeters. And let's see. It's always a pain in the ass to measure arms. No, it is hard. <laughs> is it? Is it at the peak? And Oops. it it is yeah. exactly at 43 centimeters. I cannot bring it close enough, but 43. Well, 43 minus five centimeters. Oh, because oh, you have the five. Okay. Which is exactly 38 centimeters. Yeah. So um, it, it, it like just nothing is happening to it. I mean, it doesn't look bad because like I have. Like this is kind of one indication of like how good your biceps genetics is, is like how many fingers you can insert here. I don't know if Dave, you know that for yourself, yeah. but I can insert like almost three fingers, which means that try I try something actually, because I um, can cut, <laughs> cut this part out. So something I've thought with you though before is because you've said, so that comes out to be like how many, like 15 inches. Yeah. So I... I, I honestly, I have like reasonable genetics for strength, but from a bodybuilding standpoint, it's just awful because I have good, I would say like athletic genetics, um, and like long limbs are helpful for certain sports, but I, at six, one, I have like a six, four arm span. So that's, I think part of why, like if my brother's torso is pretty similar, maybe even a little bit longer than mine. Um, uh, but he has these like short stubby, not short, but like, you know, shorter, um, arms and legs. And so his quads, like his thighs measure one or two inches smaller than mine, but look significantly bigger. His arms look probably my size and they're at least an inch smaller. So for you, I noticed like you have like thicker forearms and you have, I mean, you're obviously leaner than I am too. I'm like 196 right now. I think no, you're like yeah. 183 or something. Um, so I just measured my arms this morning and they're between 16 and a half and 16.75. So at least like an inch and a half bigger. But I'll like do what Abel just did. And I would say easily his look more impressive. I mean, obviously leaner and tanner. I mean, I'm white as hell, but like, <laughs> but, and I don't know about the whole like finger thing. I've never really done that, but they're not great. I mean, I can probably fit three fingers in there. Um, but that, and that like front bicep has always been the least impressive for me. Like if I do, if I were to like turn around and flex from the back, that looks better. I mean, most of like my back shots actually do look better. Um, but like, I now even remember Jerry Ward um, from BIOS 3, when he cut down to like, I think he was in like the 170s or something like that. And he had probably like 15 and a half inch arms, but he would always do his little sign out and like, you know, go like that. And they still looked huge. And I'm like, yeah. dude, my arms are like an inch and a half. Cause at this time I was like, I was bigger, you know, I had more size. So I had like 17 inch arms. I was like, they don't look like anything <laughs> from there. Now, if I stood next to him, you might see that size difference. But it, it's just, you know, there's so much of that with bodybuilding, just how it looks, obviously, not just the size or the strength. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there are definitely some muscle groups that are just seem to be very genetically determined. Like the other one, like I said, I told you, is rear delts, which are kind, mm -hmm. kind of similar to calves in that, I think. So um I, I like my rear delts are just like just nothing is happening with them and i tried everything um you know i tried like super high, super high rep high volume protocols i also tried relying on nothing but just compound poles um and i, I always check them like each each night before i go to the shower i like take my handheld mirror and i check it in the mirror behind me like nothing is changing and it hasn't changed for mm -hmm. a long time and if you look at sotak 
if you look at his rear delts, like they are awesome. Uh, like they look phenomenal. And I think I've saw, I've seen some pictures of him when he was like, I don't know, seven years younger, like uh, not that long into lifting. And he already had like the base structure. It has gotten bigger, yeah. but um, it didn't, didn't go from looking like mine to someone else's. Yeah. So. But even like um, Paul Canoe, you know, who's got like insane genetics. I mean, he said himself that his arms have been about the same size for like five years, you know, like he's a IFBB pro, but you know, he had his amazing gains and more or less he's kind of been the same. Now, obviously he, you know, uses sports supplements and so he can grow further from there. But even he has said like, you know, he's kind of about the same like overall size. And for him, it's more about like, you know, coming in more conditioned and, you know, working on posing and stuff like that, but it's still, yeah. you know, been about the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's a, it's a hard life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So let's uh, jump into some, uh, questions. So the first one, uh, probably going to be the most complicated. Well, actually it's not that complicated. So the guy basically wrote down his entire split, but if I, uh, boil it down to the actual question, it's that, um, his problem is that when he is doing full body, um, splits, which maybe he's got inspired by me or Menno or some of these guys that uh, talk about doing full body splits, that his bench press is taking a significant hit after doing squats. So um, is that because of central fatigue or systemic fatigue or um, and, and what could he do about it if he's concerned about his bench going down? Do you have any thoughts on that? So... I know I mentioned that at DC training and Dante quite a bit and in their leg days, it's or like their B days, they'd actually do biceps, forearms, and then they would do calves, hamstrings, quads in that order. So they would finish with like a Widowmaker on squats or, you know, whatever the exercise of choice is, because it's like you were going to be so dead after that, that you want to be done the workout. And I don't always follow that. Actually, I don't often follow that. Um, but I do a different style of workout at this point. But I think if you're that concerned about it, just put bench beforehand. I don't really see that as a problem. Um, I don't think doing bench beforehand is going to mess up your squat, but I'm not surprised to hear that if you're going really hard on squats, that that's going to mess up your bench and your leg drive and all of that. Yeah. And, and this is kind of one of the more common, um, arguments against full body training that you will be more limited on more exercises by systemic fatigue as opposed to local fatigue, which, I mean, first of all, just so you know, like your first exercise in any given session, whatever your split is, the first exercise is always going to be where you're the strongest. And as you go down in the order, like subsequent exercises are going to take a bigger and bigger hit because you're acutely fatigued not just locally, but yeah, like cardiovascularly. And then as an, by extension of that, eventually you will become more fatigued, um, like centrally or systemically. So that is, that is normal. So if you're concerned about any particular lift performing in a certain way, just put them earlier on in, in the session. So that's one thing. But secondly, keep in mind that no matter what split you do, um, you can never avoid systemic fatigue and performance dropping in other muscle groups. Like really the, the like they're the best option you actually have is the bro split because right. they're most like the majority of the fatigue that will limit your performance and subsequent exercises is local fatigue. But even if you're just doing 
and an upper lower split like uh you know whatever some poles will be impacted by what you do in your pressing exercises so you can never fully get around it and you know maybe the bro split seems like a good option in that regard but i mean if you do a leg day i mean nothing is more systemically fatiguing than a leg day so if you have like a squat pattern and a deadlift pattern in the same session like you know if, if you have four or five or more exercises the last ones are gonna be much lower quality because of that so just keep in mind that you know the grass is not really greener uh, anywhere uh, yeah know. i mean not to mention that like you know if you're doing a body part split sure that first exercise is going to be stronger but every subsequent exercise is going to be way more fatigued like if you have like three pressing exercises and you divide those out over full body workouts each one is going to be more or less maximally strong you know compared to if you do all three of those in one push day your second one's going to be way weaker and your third one you're going to be using like half the weight yeah yeah exactly uh and and, and also like uh, and maybe we talked about this before but i'm always like this is something i'm kind of going back and forth on that um just how much does that really matter what your actual like output is um yeah. as long as it's not severely limited by acute severe cardiovascular fatigue because that you know like sure. I, I could see that being kind of a non-productive way of pre-fatiguing yourself but other than that like you know as long as you're kind of within you know your maximal capabilities and you're dropping a couple of reps or you have to reduce the weight a little bit like does that really matter for the muscles because like ultimately you're looking to fatigue the muscles so i don't think it makes a huge difference from a hypertrophy standpoint to be honest yeah yeah i, I wouldn't think so um all right, so uh, next question is, um, so basically the gist of the question is, if you've been training for a respectable amount of time, maybe you know three to five years, something like that, and you haven't experienced very impressive results, and let's just, for the sake of um, this Q&A, let's just assume that um, he's not comparing himself to like really non-realistic standards. So how does he know or she know that or whether he just fucked up and he was doing a lot of things wrong or he's a non-responder? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I had somebody, what was the post? Um, was it the CAV experiment? One of the posts I made recently and somebody, I'm not curious what this was now. Um, and somebody posted like, yeah, you know, there's only so much you can do. You know, I actually have like horrible genetics and eventually these, I think it was, uh, I'll find it. But anyway, the guy was saying how, you know, even I've even had a coach give up on me because, you know, we just weren't making gains. So I go and look at his profile and he's huge. Like he's probably enhanced. So maybe he means that like he put everything into it and even being enhanced, it wasn't like that great. But like, dude, the guy, it was big like way bigger than me or you i mean i was like what are you talking about like most people will never ever be the size so part of it could be perception right like are like what are you comparing to like yeah maybe compared to ronnie coleman this guy is small but like i've actually never seen somebody this big think well other than ben pakalski think <laughs> that he doesn't have good genetics i mean it was just nuts but anyway um so yeah that that's one like having realistic expectations but two like i mean if you've been doing this for three to five years or whatever it is are i mean have you been following you know, podcasts and following this like fitness space and everything. Cause at that point you should kind of know 
what's generally good and what's bad. You know what I mean? I mean, you, it's, and, and frankly, as long as you're consistent, I mean, if you're consistent in the gym and consistent with eating in a calorie surplus, that's most of what you need in those first three to five years to know how you respond. So, um, every once in a while you'll find somebody where like something was way off, you know, like they were actually training really hard, but their calories, they were just not eating because they just felt they need to stay lean. Or maybe they were one of the rare actual cases of somebody being hypogonadal. Um, something was off, you know, but for the most part, I mean, you're going to make noticeable gains in the first three to five years. So if you're not, maybe you're not having a great response in general. Yeah. And this is, um, so basically I would echo what you just said. So the diet being off is, is, um, seems to be a bigger deal than I, I used to think. So someone could be actually training pretty intelligently, but maybe was always chasing leanness and was scared to just eat. And that seems to be quite detrimental, especially in the first like couple of years, like it, it can hold you back significantly. That definitely happened to me. Um, training like people definitely fuck around a lot and and this is something that i mentioned on a podcast that we appeared on recently together which i don't know when it's gonna be out mm -hmm. but um i mentioned that like looking at their strength levels often tells me quite a lot so when i see that someone is complaining about not having grown very much but then i see that okay their strength levels are not even reaching what would be considered intermediate levels if you look at one of these sites like the exrx database i almost i'm almost relieved because it's that indicates to me that okay like even if you're a low responder like it's it's rare to see that someone is also like a super mega low responder in terms of strength gains so usually right. even those with not so great genetics for muscle growth can still gain some respectable amount of strength so yeah. um so it, it's probably a um, a bigger worry, maybe not, that's not the best word, when somebody's like super strong but doesn't even look like they lift, which right. um, which I've seen happen in, in some rare cases. So that's, that's another thing I would say there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. All right, so uh, next question basically boils down to, and I think this was in response to maybe some of my videos and also in response to some of my posts that the person wants to diet and wants to make the diet easier by eating a lot of these high fiber, uh, low calorie, high volume foods, but just hates being bloated. And that's just something that um, he cannot put up with. So what would be our best tip basically for someone who wants to eat a lot of, or wants to be less hungry, but just cannot tolerate a lot of fiber? Um, what do you think? <laughs> Stop dieting. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Is this your question, Abel? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're saying you're trying to eat a lot of fibrous, high-volume foods, I mean, high-volume doesn't necessarily have to mean super high-fiber. I mean, most of the time, yes, it does. Um, but there, there are some options that aren't, like, super high in fiber that you're still going to get a lot of volume. Um, you can have like really big shakes, you know, and, and that I find that helpful. Although you'll, if you have them later in the day, you'll be peeing all night. Um, but for the most part, I mean, if you're dieting, I've never found a way to diet and not be hungry. I mean, it, it's going to happen. You know, you can mitigate it a little bit, but um, I think part of it, depending on how deep into the diet you are, is just like accepting it. Like I remember Alberto Nunez talking about that. And it's like, you know, you can kind of get into this never ending chase to like not be hungry. And now you're eating like, you know, a whole pack of sugar-free gum every day. You're drinking tons of diet soda. 
you're having all this sugar-free jello, you're eating giant salads, and like you're still kind of hungry and bloated. And maybe you're a little bit less hungry, but now you're spending half your day making these foods and everything. Um, over time, I've gotten away from the diet sodas and, and, and all like the diet stuff. Uh, and I, I mean, I eat a lot of vegetables when I'm dieting, but I've also just kind of embraced the suck, you know, for, I've heard, who said that? I've heard a few people say that. But anyway, it, it's a, uh, it's something that I think you just have to deal with if you're going to be dieting for a while. I've not really found a way to circumvent that. Yeah, I mean, I think there, so on that kind of philosophical note, I think there's a happy medium there. So I think, um, I, I think be having like being of the mindset that okay, I'm gonna be hungry no matter what, so I might as well just eat like bread and cheese and whatever, and mm -hmm. just just a couple of protein shakes and like who cares about satiety management? I I think that's that's um, kind of the other extreme. So like yeah, sure. there there are a lot of things that you can do to very sustainably and intelligently keep yourself less hungry and you can make the diet so much easier so to not make use of that would be would be foolish and um I mean, part of me is kind of when, when someone like alberto says it kind of the cynic in me says that like well with your freaking calories like even right. if you even if you were to eat like bread and whatever pastries even then you would probably <laughs> eat a fairly high volume diet <laughs> sure. just because you're dieting on over three thousand calories but um I, I think where that um, mindset has validity is that you can definitely get into the point where like you end up thinking a lot more about the fact that you're dieting and that you're trying to not be hungry than right. actually just living life. And even if you manage to suppress your hunger, like you're not really gaining anything because the mental stress is actually even higher because you're thinking about it more. So, and, and I've definitely fallen for that. So I was like, no, so I'm eating a lot of veggies and a lot of low calorie fruits, but even that's not good enough. So what is some other like creative stuff that I could come up with? So, okay, let's, let's put like lettuce at like sweetener on top of it and like cocoa powder put that in the freezer so it comes yeah. out that this like frozen lettuce pieces and i mean <laughs> it, it tasted like like absolutely it was traumatizing to eat that to say the least um <laughs> and 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 like you know and and i ended up taking half an afternoon to come up with the genius idea so mm. there there's definitely something to that but as far as like reducing bloating um for one some of that you just kind of have to accept. Like if you think that your stomach is going to look like on a carnivore diet or after eating like rice cakes, if you're eating a lot of veggies, like that's that's very naive. Like some yeah. amount of stomach distension and gas formation is inevitable if you're eating more fiber. Like that that is just how it is. But what's what shouldn't happen is like this horrible gas and uh, like your stomach hurting and things like that. And that's in most cases is just uh, managing food intolerances. So a lot of people have some minor food intolerance, even if it's not something as severe as like celiac disease or something like that. Uh, right. You know, FODMAP intolerances or just some whatever compound in some particular plant food, that's, that's very common. So I know for myself, like I probably have a FODMAP intolerance. Um, so if I eat a lot of broccoli, like I get severely bloated and it doesn't just go away after a couple of hours. Like it persists for like a day. If I eat a lot of apples, I get a lot of stomach ache and I also mm -hmm. get very bloated. So 
you know, if, if you manage that, then you might be able to just have a very like moderate amount of stomach distension, which kind of just comes and goes. So yeah. keep that, keep that in mind. Hey guys, just a brief interruption. I want to let you know that round two of my group coaching service has now opened up. In this coaching system, you will get a customized training and diet setup tailored for your needs, detailed guidance on training progression and diet management, and you will be able to interact with me and other members of the group, both in written format and on calls during the week. And for a limited time now, you can hop on a call with me and we can talk over your goals and see if you are a good fit for this. So if this sounds interesting to you, then check the link in the video or show description below and you can book a call with me. But if you would rather just send an email, you can also do that. Also check out the show description for that. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show. Uh, alrighty. So next question, I guess it's fairly simple. So basically the question is, uh, is it okay to bench twice a week? at roughly the same rep range or rep target, or would it be better to have two different rep targets? What do you think about that? Uh, I think, yes, it's fine. Um, but I also think, yes, it would be better to have different rep ranges. Um, I don't think either one's going to make a huge difference, but yeah, there's no problem benching twice a week for sure. And, um, yeah, I mean, if if you're doing like six to eight reps and six to eight reps, that's fine. I I do think there, you're going to get some small benefits from maybe doing let's say like six to eight and then another day like 12 to 15. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I normally tell people. Um, for, for one, it's probably good from uh, like injury management perspective. Just uh, if you're hitting something very heavy on one day, just go a bit lighter on another day and you know, like pattern overload and just repetitive overuse is gonna be a bit more mitigated. Twice a week training for the same uh, exercise is probably not going to be that bad anyway, but just kind of better safe than sorry. And then also maybe there is some potential mechanism there with um, hitting different muscle fibers with higher and lower reps. So I think it's just a safe bet and it doesn't really cost anything. I actually did it just now. So I did heavy RDLs for like sets of six and I did a set of 13 today. I was only planning on 10, but I was surprisingly strong. So nice. Nice. yeah. Uh, all right. So the next one, I don't know if, um, how productively we can answer that. Have you ever tried Versa grips? I've not. No. Yeah. Yeah. So basically he asked me like, um, what would be the difference between or the benefit pros and cons of using Versa grips or the angles 90 grips. So, uh, I've, I've never tried Versa grips. I actually, one of my clients, some one of, um, like the group calls this week actually showed me how their Versa grips work. And like everybody's talking about how amazing it is, but I just don't see like the geniusness of it just from looking yeah. at it. Like it has this very kind of short strap and how it works is that you put the strap here and as you grab onto the bar, it creates this like very like minimal, um, like basically like a lot of friction so you can grip onto the bar much more strongly. Mm-hmm. Which is which is cool. It's smart, but I, I just don't see how it's that much better than any kind of normal strap. Um, but but anyway, but yeah. So I'll just say a couple of things on the angles ninety grips. So yeah, man, I got them for fifty bucks, and I actually got two of them because I'm scared that I'm gonna lose them. <laughs> um, and they they are absolutely amazing. So mm-hmm. it, it's so rare that you order something for like that kind of a price range, like. You don't expect magic from it, but 
It's also like not completely insignificant as an expense and you're right. getting exactly what you hope that you would get out of it. Like <laughs> right. it's so refreshing when that happens and it's just exactly what it is. Like it's basically a mini Olympic ring in your backpack that you can carry everywhere and you can just use it on a lot of pulling exercises. So um, for pull downs, uh, like rows, especially like chest supported rows, uh, you can also use it kind of on deadlift, so you can use like a wider grip and like you can grip onto them like fairly firmly. So for yeah. those is, is great, but mainly for pull downs and row variations. And honestly, if you have sensitive elbows, then I think it's a no brainer, like uh, because your elbows can rotate like normally the elbow or the wrist is fixed. So ideally, your wrist would want to rotate as you're pulling, but it cannot because you're gra grabbing onto the bar. So the next joint where it would want to rotate is the elbow, but the elbow cannot rotate. So it puts a lot of like torque on the elbow joint and that mm -hmm. can kind of cause inflammation and um, pain in the long term. So for that, it's amazing. Yeah. And I'm actually an affiliate for Angles 90 uh, now. <laughs> so uh, there's a coupon code in the show description. So uh, just mentioning that. All right. Uh, do we have anything else actually? Um, so, okay, we, oh yeah, okay, basically this. So, um, basically the gist of the question is how much gains is he leaving on the table if he only eats two meals a day as opposed to like four or so? Um, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I do think that that's probably less than ideal. I mean, I am a fan of intermittent fasting. I never really notice any problems with it from a growth standpoint uh you know when i've switched away from it and try to eat you know six meals a day or whatever i just didn't notice any benefit um and that's have been done that for a long time but i you know if you had a gun to my head do i think you can grow on two meals a day sure um do i think the end result after 15 years will be similar probably uh but if somebody said hey you have to put as much muscle on somebody as possible in a year I wouldn't have them eating two times a day. I'd probably have them eating like four times a day at least. Yeah, I mean, so basically the whole argument comes down to there's only so much protein in one given meal that your body can effectively use for synthesizing muscle proteins. So if you have only two meals a day and you're having, so let's say you need 200 grams of protein and you have 100 in each, like some of that protein is quote unquote wasted from a muscle building perspective. Like your body is still going to make use of it, is going to whatever, use it for some structural remodeling in connective tissue or lay it down in, you know, around your organs. Some of it is going to be converted into body fat. Some of that is going to be converted into glucose. But from a muscle building standpoint, you're not gaining any more from 100 grams of protein than from 30 or 40. Uh, what I always have issue with there, and this is something that I want to ask from a couple of experts uh, on the podcast is, okay, so let's say I need 200 grams of protein per day. I woke up in the morning and I had 30 grams of protein. And let's, see, let's say we are making the argument that you can only use 40 grams of protein per meal for my body weight. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so I had say 40 grams of protein in the morning and something came up, whatever, like I had a terrorist attack, I had to fight off uh, burglars, whatever. So until like my pre-bad meal, I couldn't eat anything. So 
if I can only use 40 grams of protein per meal, then would you say I might as well only eat 40 grams of protein in that pre-bed meal as well? Because the rest is going to be wasted from like a muscle building perspective. Or should I actually eat 160 grams of protein to make up for that 200? And I think most of these protein researchers would still say that, no, no, I, I would like make up for your protein, total protein requirements to some extent. Um, or maybe they wouldn't say that, but then what do we say about these people who eat, you know, maybe three meals a day only, and they have like three really big protein feedings? Um, are they actually just wasting the rest of the protein? And in that case, what happens is that they are basically growing on less overall protein because they are wasting a bunch of it. So let's say they right. would need 200 and they're only making use of 120 grams of protein per day. So in that case, the explanation is that, well, the difference between actually hitting your optimal protein levels per day and just whatever, 60% of that, the end outcome is not going to be that huge between the two. So like, wh what is the explanation? Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's like theoretical. Some of it is theoretical, but they'll show like in protein studies, like, well, okay, above 40 milligrams, you know, this, or sorry, 40 grams, this um, maximize muscle protein synthesis. But the problem is most of the time, well, there's a few problems. One, they're measuring protein synthesis, but they're not measuring protein degradation, right? And so it's obviously the combination of those two. So, um, you know, maybe high levels of protein intake are not going to increase synthesis, but they're going to decrease degradation. So your net outcome is still better. Um, two, I think, yeah, I mean, it would be hard pressed to look at like the people like Martin Birkin, who really, you know, popularized intermittent fasting back in like 2011. The dude is huge, extremely strong, and he'll have like 100 grams of protein in a meal. Like, I just don't believe that there's no differences between 40 and say like 100 grams of protein in a meal. Um, I did that. Like I said, I was doing intermittent fasting. I've mentioned like my sophomore year of college, and I still gained eight pounds of muscle that year compared to seven pounds the year prior, even though I was eating in an eight hour window. And I was still at that time eating like 250 grams of protein. So these are like big protein feedings. So um, I do think you would probably want to make it up in that case. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you always have to keep in mind that there are certain mechanisms that we might just not have discovered thus far. So who knows, maybe if you eat a very large bolus of protein, then it's going to kind of drip into your system over a more prolonged period. So maybe acutely, if you measure it, then the protein synthesis um, rate is not that much higher compared to only eating 40 grams of protein. But maybe you're getting this more prolonged uh, protein, muscle protein synthesis response to that meal. So it's, it's kind of the same thing as um, I was talking about um, like progressive overload with someone. And maybe, maybe actually we can get into it, just pretend that this was another question. Mm -hmm. So I, I had this conversation with someone that, um, you know, if you're if you're like not able to progress on something, like let's say you're doing 15 pull-ups and going to the 16th pull-up is very difficult and you cannot add weight, so you cannot microload it, but you're not quite strong enough for that 16th pull-up. Like, does it really matter as long as like you're going close to failure? Like, are you getting the same stimulus? So does it even matter if you're able to increase the weight or the reps? And I was like, well, theoretically, I guess that 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 would sound logical, but like, who knows, like, Anecdotally, we just don't see people who never progress their training 
get that right. much bigger. And everybody who gets bigger also progresses their training in some way. So like, who knows, maybe there is some other mechanism, like when you're going heavier and you're loading your muscles more heavily, maybe there are some other like downstream adaptations, like maybe your connective tissue is also getting some stress and that has to adapt to some extent as well. And that maybe allows muscles to grow bigger as well. So like you, you can never discount that we just don't know anything or everything yet. Sure. So it's kind of similar in the protein case, but, uh, but what do you think about that? What I just said, like, if you didn't progress, um, if you didn't progress your training, what would happen as long as you're actually training close to failure? Like in that given that one session, if you didn't progress, how would that affect? Like, no. Overall? So, so basically what happens in this case, this is an actual case study is, um, I was trying to convince this guy for a long time to actually add weight to his pull-ups or chin-ups because mm. he's already at a point where adding more reps is very difficult. Like, as you know, if you go from like eight pull-ups to nine pull-ups to 10 pull-ups, you can go up in reps. But once you're up at like 15, 16, 17 pull-ups or chin-ups, like it's very difficult to add more reps. Sure. Um, so I said like, look, you, that's probably going to take you an outrageously long time when you can, until you can do that. But if you added like two more pounds, like another right. kilo to your pull-ups, like probably you could still hit 15 reps. Um, and then we had this back and forth of like, well, but you know, if you're going like very close to failure, like, am I still not growing, even though I'm not strong enough, or I somehow just cannot add another rep, I'm still getting the stimulus, right? Like if I'm going very close to failure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, what would you think of that? Uh, well, I know, you know, if you go back to like, even like the Brian Haycock days, they would say that a given stimulus remains a stimulus for like three weeks but that's really like in beginners you know like you could have a beginner put on like the same weight and do it like three weeks in a row although why would you because they're also able to increase the weight much faster than that um i do think there's something to be said for you know like you don't always have to increase weight every session and i still think you could be having that stimulus like let's say i did you know i guess you can use pull-ups like let's say i did my body weight and my Pull-ups are hard for this example because they like let's just say you're staying the same weight, right? Same body weight. So you're 200 pounds, and you could you're at 10 pounds added to you. If that was the first week you got that, then maybe like the next week you had because then this is kind of why you told him to add little bits of weight, right? Like maybe he could have gotten to like the same reps with 12 pounds added, but he didn't do it, so he got the same reps because he stayed at 10 reps like you said, proportionally adding a whole nother rep might be the equivalent of adding like five pounds. So maybe he got two pounds stronger and then two pounds stronger and then one pound stronger, but he didn't realize those gains until he was actually able to do either like a whole nother rep or actually add five pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there could still be some like small progressions going on there, but without microloading, you're just not going to notice it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've done few pull-up specialization phases and I always I get from like 12 up to like 20 pretty easily and then I get to like 22 23 and then it's like it's really hard <laughs> to add you know I've done one set of 30 in my life and, and and these are like very fast reps you know um just trying to like bang them out um but be like you know once you start getting to those low 20s it's really hard to really add much there it, it's it's quite fascinating like why why that is because like on like first of all 
on like pull-ups and chin-ups, like almost no, like most people don't get quite as strong as say on a bench press. And, mm-hmm. and, and I have a hard time understanding exactly why that is the case. And also like, it seems like almost irrespective of the person, like I don't see anybody banging out like, like 20 plus, like very solid pull-ups or chin-ups. And, right. and honestly, I don't understand why. Um, I would speculate that it's because like, as you're getting very strong, your like work capacity actually tends to go down. Um, and probably like it also has to do with body weight, like you're lifting heavier weights uh, eventually. So like each rep is a bit more taxing. But I, I like whenever I see someone on YouTube doing like, oh, like 30 pull up challenge or something like that, like I already know that it's going to be like half range of motion, like right, right. kind of kind of bullshit pull ups. So it is kind of fascinating. But yeah, it, it's really hard to explain. But like um, I see this with clients as well that when they kind of misunderstand the progression guidelines or they just don't notify me about it, when they don't do anything about a stalled progression, they will just keep banging their heads into the wall again and again. So like they will be right. stuck at whatever 80 kilo bench press for eight and they, they don't do anything about it to like break that plateau. And it's like 80 times eight, 80 times eight, 80 times eight, 80 times seven, like regression. Like it just like nothing is happening. So mm-hmm. I don't know why that is the case because in theory, like, yeah, maybe you you are getting stronger. It's just like not manifesting in an extra additional rep. Right. But but like but then still like the weight should become easier over time and eventually you should be able to add another rep. But for some reason, I'm just not seeing that very often. I, yeah. I, I have a really hard time explaining why that's happening. So in practice, it just really seems like you have to be proactive about it. So you have to add weight, like just just increase the absolute stimulus in some way and then you're past that plateau and sometimes then you can progress linearly quite well for a while it's really kind of a weird weird mystery just curious you can cut this out just how many pull-ups do you think you can get uh like strict and going quickly but full range of motion uh i didn't try quick ones in a long time um i so not long ago i actually did it on one of my Instagram lives because I didn't want to add a bunch of weights. And and I, I did like 15 and probably I could have gotten a 16th like ugly one. And that was like okay. very, very legit, like strict yeah. full rum. Yeah, because right now I do um, on my one day that I'm home, I'm trying to make everything harder. So I actually do biceps for three sets to failure and then I do pull-ups. And if I do like you know, really controlled and then really like controlled up, I get like 13 to 14 right now. So mm. fresh, maybe like, I don't know, 16 or 17. Um, I haven't done like really rapid, like banging them out in a few months. When I was, it was also after biceps and I was getting maybe like 22. So maybe fresh, like 24, 25. But I mean, that's, you know, I'm like, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't tried that in a long time. I'm actually afraid that I would like strain my lat or something if I did that. Um, anyway, but yeah, we can switch over to your Q and A. 